This is the center for religion in the city. The next stop is Contagion, Religion and Cities. Welcome to the third episode of the Contagion podcast. I'm your host, Sharaf Gantareen, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amanda Furiase, and a group of scholars, critical thinkers, I would even say pioneers, interested and invested in learning more about combining and merging the study of religion and health. Let me briefly introduce each one of them to you. Giselle Toruno, Harold Morales, Christina Rossetti, Sierra Lawson, Kayla Wheeler, Daisy Vargas, and our special guest for today's podcast, Brett Hendrickson. Brett teaches at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania, where he currently holds the title of the Associate Professor of Religious Studies, as well as the Chair of the Latin American and Caribbean Studies Program. In 2014, Brett wrote his first monograph entitled Border Medicine, a Transcultural History of Mexican-American Curanderismo. And three years later, in 2017, he wrote a second monograph entitled The Healing Power of Santuario de Chimayo, America's Miraculous Church. Today, we gather to have a deep discussion of Brett's first book, Border Medicine, and for us to start off this discussion, we have Dr. Daisy Vargas with a brief summary of the key insights in that book about religion, health, and the Southwest region. Hello, everyone. Good morning from Tucson, Arizona. Um, I want to thank the Center for the Study of Religion in the City for inviting me to introduce today's guest, Brett Hendrickson. Brett, I'm looking forward to our conversation today and hearing more about your work. Um, earlier, in fact, just a couple moments ago, we were talking about our connections to the center um, and that summer funding that I got from the center last year, such as a bit kind of over, you know, overlaps a bit of, of um, onto what you write about, which is Botanicus um, and healing, mm -hmm. right? So I'm excited cool. um, yeah. to talk to you today. I first encountered uh, Brett Hendrickson's book, Border Medicine, in graduate school at UC Riverside. I was actually two years into field work with a curandera in a botanica in Anaheim. Um, and like many, many historians of the northern Mexican borderlands, I was deep into the literature on what I like to call the trinity of Mexican borderland folk saints. Don Pedrito Jaramillo and El Niño Fidencio. Hendrickson's book confirmed many of the observations and conversations historians and ethnographers were having about the U.S.-Mexico borderlands around definitions of American religions in the U.S., religious and cultural hybridity, and the category of religion in itself. Indeed, Hendrickson's border medicine introduces a transcultural theory of religious healing in his history of the American Southwest after the Mexican-American War. He highlights moments and narratives of contact between Anglo-American and Mexican and Mexican-American religious healers and communities. Hendrickson traces parallel histories of religion in the United States, the metaphysical traditions of white settlers, mesmerism, new thought, spiritualism, new age practices, and the histories of traditions in the Mexican borderlands, curanderismo, espiritismo, and espiritualismo. Through the biographies of that borderland trinity, Urrea, Jaramillo, and Nino Fidencio, as well as Francis Schlatter, Hendrickson illustrates the transcultural healing practices between white folks and Mexican communities. The encounters described exemplify this predisposition and openness to healing created through knowledge and experience of metaphysical traditions brought west by white settlers, as well as the hybrid traditions found within curanderismo. As Hendrickson describes, Mexican curanderos and curanderas negotiated their own healing traditions in this changing cultural landscape. The last section of border medicine draws from Hendrickson's fieldwork in New Mexico and addresses the politics of cultural exchange and questions of appropriation and contemporary practices. 
Here, Hendrickson's encounters when co with contemporary curanderos and curanderas reveals healing practices often influenced by the new age, right, and grappling with other questions of authenticity. He reveals the tension of defining a so-called pure and authentic curandero practice linked to pre-colonial indigenous history, as well as more modern practices attributed to metaphysical religions. The distancing of more traditionally Roman Catholic practices in curanderismo in favor of a universal spiritual tone not only makes Mexican healing more marketable to white audiences, but also reflects the influence and importance of those transcultural exchanges. So rereading Border Medicine in 2020 brought a different set of questions to my mind than the first time I read it, um, which was too many years ago. <laughs> um, today we are dealing with a global pandemic that disproportionately affects Latinx communities, including access to healthcare, incarceration, and detention of migrants, and the revival of the cultural of poverty argument in academic discourse. Brett, I wonder if you might be able to offer a reflection on your research today, given both the context of recent events, but also the larger context of American history. <laughs> All right, thank you. That was really nice. It's it's always uh, great to hear a summary um, because you know you always wonder is anyone reading this at all? And so thank you very <laughs> much for doing it. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, that was. It, it's been a while since I, I wrote Border Medicine. It came out of my dissertation, which was all written, you know, um, before 2010 um, for the most part. And then a lot of the fieldwork came after that for the second part of the book. But um, I would say that, you know, it's, it's really hard to link those things to, to this particular stage in our history. I feel maybe I, I'm wrong about this, uh, as I sh maybe as an historian, I shouldn't say this, but I feel like we've departed in so many ways from, um, you know, business as usual. Um, not to say that there aren't any linkages. I would be interested in, in thinking about how we we still haven't we haven't come to a place where um, I'm kind of grasping at straws right now. I'm sorry that um, you know in in our current climate, I guess when we're all trying to to care about our health against one particular illness, uh, it seems to me that there is less room than ever um, it, for most people to think about. Um, traditional medicine, uh, what people might call folk medicine, or um, on, in some ways, new agey or, or spiritual medicine, uh, CAM, complementary alternative medicines, uh, that those things, I think, I, by at least a certain part of the population are, are considered to be possibly part of the, um, the, the world of denying things, of not wanting to take vaccines, of, um, not wanting to participate in scientific, you know, scientific advice that could be helping all of us right now. Uh, so I think it, it's a little hard to uh, think in depth, at least from my point of view, about the sorts of things I was writing about in border medicine, because it seems like in, the, in a moment of crisis, you know, I, 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 a lot of people want to bracket that kind of, of medicine and tradition. Um, on the other hand, um, it also maybe introduces some interesting bedfellows or strange bedfellows. Um, I'm remembering the the image from earlier in the summer where the the blonde white lady was like hanging out the side of a car window or something and going down the street and saying like how Jesus was going to save everybody from the coronavirus. Do you remember this? That I think so. Yeah. That on, on the other hand, you know what could possibly heal us uh, would be you know at this point the only thing that could heal us according to some people would be miraculous intervention or protection. Um, but I'm sure that's only reserved for certain forms of, you know, um, faithful expression uh, that aren't necessarily available to all of us. So um, I don't know if that really answers your question uh, very well, but I, I do feel like it, it's, it's harder at, at this moment to con make contemporary um, or, or make relevant this kind of scholarship. Um, on the other hand, if now, 
sorry, I should stop and wait for another question instead of continuing <laughs> to dig myself a hole here. Uh, as far as can, uh, what you mentioned is that L Latinx people are, are suffering at higher rates from COVID than other communities, and the same goes for, for uh, African Americans. Okay. One could say that the one argument that people have made is that the persistence of things like curanderismo has to do with the fact that Latinx people and other people of color have not had good access to biomedicine. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, they would resort to curanderismo. Now, I, I don't think that's a completely compelling argument. On the other hand, uh, I think it's clear that the higher rates of, of morbidity right now for Latin, Latinx people and African-American people have everything to do with, with uh, racist exclusion from the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, now, whether or not that, I, I wouldn't know how to tie exactly the lines to how that would be supporting traditional medicine. I'm not, I'm not sure it does other than, you know, if, again, if people are, are really are forced into this argument that, that it's a medicine of last resort, then, then maybe that's where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Following up on that, we had um, Wendy Marshall in, and she was kind of talking about, because one of the points in the book that I think is really interesting that you make is that, um, you know, traditional healing, botanicas, all the stuff is actually increasing in um, kind of popularity, especially among young people. And when we're talking with, which I've seen too, because I, I teach courses at um, my university, Hamlin, I'm actually teaching one in the fall about traditional medicine. Uh, from a Native American African perspective and um, it's full it filled within Good. an hour <laughs> yeah <laughs> within an hour and um, you know when I've taught this course in the past a lot of my students come to me and they say I just I just hate our medical system I just it just is exhausting and I and a lot of students have said I, I think it's making me sick and um, mm. one of the things that Wendy Marshall said that one of maybe one of the ways that traditional medicine or whatever category we want to use to describe it um, but in this case, you know, botanicas, uh, traditional healers working at the border is that unlike maybe, I don't want to draw such a contrast here, but unlike, um, public health or doctors or traditional healthcare workers, um, traditional healers have more of a focus on the environment and mm. social and economic mm. conditions Yeah, and how that might impact and inform someone's health. Yeah which I don't know if you yeah, see that because I think you talk a lot about in the book about that, which I think is great. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I mean, I think one of the major reasons that people um, maintain connections to curanderismo and other forms of, of, you know, ethnically traditional medicine, if you want to say something like that, is, is precisely that not only that they find that it works, but that they find that the entire environment of the healing is something that's a lot more conducive to getting better and addresses them not only as an entire person, but as a person within a family or community, um, which people find really helpful. And I mean, I don't want to at all critique healthcare workers right now. Uh, right, but, right. <laughs> With you, you know, 100%, yeah. Yeah, in a way, I, that sort of medicine is exactly what we need. And I mean, I'm not a medical doctor, I can't give medical advice, but you know, going much longer than sticking a Q-tip up somebody's nose, we also need contact tracers, mm -hmm. which in, other, in a way sort of contextually consider the person and their, their connections, um, in addition to looking at, you know, the flora and fauna that's invading the body or whatever. Right. So. Yeah. No, and I'm, I 100% agree with that. You know, in Africa, they have a, it's called medical pluralism, where you have kind of, because they just have this category called medicine, and they don't distinguish between yeah. like, you know, <laughs> in the way that we do, right? Um, and they kind of, um, specifically in Madagascar, other countries too, are really good at having traditional healers, healthcare workers, doctors work collaboratively together. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, I think, um, you know, if the, the trouble of course, I think as we're all noticing right now is that a lack of a public health system in any real way is, is really, hurting us now. It's not only that we have a horrible leader, it's that, you know, there, there's no structure to kind of combat his horror, you know, that, that in, in a public health system that would be dealing with prevention, that would be dealing with these sorts of things. So, yeah. I mean, I it's wonder... really, um, interesting to think about the period, the historical period that you're writing about, right? Um, Pedrito Jaramillo um, in particular, 
right? The creation of the American Medical Association, these um, categories of so-called quackery, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And not the same moments, right? But I, I can kind of see those tensions still today, right? Is how, how do people understand what medicine is and what's, you know, what works and what doesn't work? And, you know, when exactly. do you trust medical professionals and when do you distrust them and these kinds of things? But I think I really like your story about the cowboy boots. I think cowboy, maybe I'm <laughs> yes. making up the cowboy boot part, but the boots and the no, tomatoes, no. <laughs> right? And the tomatoes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Adorijo <laughs> mix, you know, he fills up the tomato, the, he pours a bunch of cans of tomatoes in the boots and this really helps this guy's feet, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's effective, or if, you know, it works. Um, I mean, I think that's one good measure to talk about just what are results. Uh, but I think ultimately, what's what's one of the reasons I never have been attracted to the kind of research, you know, that might be more, um, you know, double-blind trials or something like that with particular uh, herbs from a botanica or something like that. Is I, I just don't feel like those are epistemologically the right kind of approach to this. You know, that's that's not what kind of um, experience is being had. It's it's not what people are are I think trying to achieve. Um, they're trying to feel better, um, which might be it, it's it may be different than a, like a, a strictly scientific outcome. Uh, not to say that there's never overlap with with Jaramillo and with with these other, the, the, I love that Trinity, that's a funny one. Um, you know, it, it has a lot more, I think, to do with um, the, the other theory that I, I, I put forward in the book that I really love is, is Thomas Chortis's theory um, of healing, religious healing, which is, is com a complex theory, but, you know, to kind of boil it down, that there are these, you know, it's kind of a Bourdieuian theory that there are these predispositions that we carry in our bodies uh, that, that, can really be affected by stories. You know, stories uh, you know, and or rituals are, are really somatic in that regard and, and, um, and also social. And um, yeah, I think that those sorts of things are, are ultimately really important. And, and, and actually when, I don't know who it was, it you Amanda who said that, or was it uh, Daisy, I'm forgetting now, someone going to the doctor saying like participating in the system is making me sick. Yeah, mm -hmm. I had a student literally I, say that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I feel what, it, you know, one way we could read that uh, sort of anthropologically is to say the story of our current healthcare system is a sick story. It's a story that is not about making people better. It's, it's about other things too often for people. And that's having a serious effect. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. Well, you all are really pushing me as a story to try to figure out like contemporary, like, this, I didn't mean for it to be relevant. This isn't supposed to be relevant. So. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to push on, on that same sort of uh, um, trajectory, but by taking a, a step back, so you mentioned, I thought it was really interesting, um, like the possibility for curanderos serving, curanderas serving as like contact tracing, contact tracers. Yeah. Um, so like there, there's a, um, a bunch of other things, right? So like there's people who are um, less uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic um, and don't feel well but don't need to go into the hospital or people that do spend some time at the hospital and then come back and have all these long-term um, sort of recovery issues. So I wonder yeah. what other um, roles uh, curanderos and curanderas might play. Um, yeah. but, but going backwards and thinking about your experiences, so um, what were some of the roles that's, um, that some of uh, the, the healers were? Maybe even takes, um, takes place or, or you do it through looking at the, the trinity of um, or like yeah. the history or yeah. some of the uh, specific people and practices and then seeing if maybe any of those are still relevant in terms of the less less symptomatic or asymptomatic or long-term recovery yeah. sorts of things. That's a really great question. Um, I would say that the, um, the asymptomatic care um, is, is, is tricky. Um, because, you know, I, I think that the whole idea of being sick asymptomatically doesn't, doesn't fit into this that well. 
you know, that, that really is, I think, uh, you know, something that is germ theory more than something else, you know, and, and not just theory that, you know, you have, you're carrying the disease, but um, with that said, I, I think that, you know, there might be, um, there, there are ways of caring that are, are part of the curanderismo um, that would work here. Um, first of all, possibly meeting not just with a patient, but with a patient within a, a family unit, uh, thinking about, you know, how are ways that your behavior um, and your body and, and the way you're feeling are related to your whole family. Now, again, I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm really on thin ice here because I, you know, I, this is way past my, my era and uh, for the most part. Uh, the other thing I was thinking of though would be potentially um, sort of body work that is, is both really popular among a lot of CAM, like Reiki or um, certain types of massage or rolfing or um, uh, what's that? I can never remember the name of it where it's like the little hot cups that the, you know, what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, I can't think of the name of it. Yeah, cupping. Yeah, hot cup, <laughs> cupping. There we go. Uh, those sorts of things that are, are, some of those are shared very much with different types of curanderismo. And um, possibly, I don't know if those would have, I mean, I don't think that those have any effect on a virus uh, per se. On the other hand, that kind of like therapeutic attention uh, to people, mostly when they're feeling sick, but even when they maybe are dealing with the fact that they're dangerous to other people and don't feel sick, uh, could be something that, you know, this kind of healthcare system could, you know, traditional healing could help with. Um, I also wanted to point out too that, you know, most curanderas are Catholics. And I think one of the other things that's happening right now too is how limited people are from being in their physical religious communities, mm -hmm. um, particularly Catholic or, or other Christian religious communities. And that if there were a way that a curandera in this sense could be a little bit like a parish nurse, um, that would be amazing. And, and, and again, I'm, I'm just thinking that would be nice. I, I don't have any sort of, there's no evidence of that that I know of, um, but that would be um, a really nice partnership and coalition to, you know, to move on this. And, and one can imagine um, in, a, in a different country uh, where community-based healthcare policy would be related to state and federal healthcare policy in a way that would promote those sorts of things. Um, I don't think we're living in that country right now. Mm -hmm. If I can just add to that, um, Michelle Gonzalez, who um, is a professor of religious studies, um, did an interview with, um, you know, every once in a while, actually pretty often, you'll get these newspaper uh, journalists that want to do a story about botanicas, right? Okay. Um, so she was tapped to do an interview, and in the interview, cool. right, um, a, a curandera and a botanica was saying, you know, I have people coming in here, and I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, a doctor, um, but I've been mm -hmm. referring people to go to the hospital, right? So maybe mm -hmm. not contact right. tracing, but definitely, a, and also my own experience. Um, among curanderas um, in Southern California is that they'll say, there are things I cannot treat, right? I can treat yeah, certain right. maladies, but I can't treat yeah. other things. So perhaps as a middle person, right, to, or a liaison to refer people. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was listening to an NPR story the other day about Nairobi, and I guess there, um, the price of lemons has really jumped in Nairobi, the NPR reporter was saying because lemons are a key ingredient in a lot of these sort of folk medicines that are sold in markets in Nairobi. And he said, they're, they're, they're just going gangbusters right now, these remedies are. Mm -hmm. um, but then he ended the thing by saying, on the other hand, uh, no one thinks that these are gonna cure COVID. They all understand that these aren't cures for COVID. They just find them deeply comforting right now in a time of like major upheaval. Um, and so I can, I think it was a really nice piece of reporting for once of, of not, saying like these people are pre-scientific and in of course the incredibly modern city of Nairobi. Um, it wasn't about that. It was about how tradition is part of wellness, even if it isn't necessarily giving a cure to this very, you know, serious virus. So. Mm -hmm.
I think your comments just now and also Daisy's word choice in um, liaison really point towards uh, this. Perhaps it's going to come out as more of a comment than a question just because I'm thinking on my feet. But in the conclusion, you say, um, speaking of the kinship ties, responsibilities and friendships that Curanderas facilitate, you say, those support structures and relationships create a new and healthier dependency, a dependency that ultimately supports ongoing nurture within a reliable community. Um, and as I'm sitting in Chapel Hill, which feels like ground zero right now, as I'm fielding um, innumerable emails that I have no way of, you know, completely responding to as I'm not a public health expert nor um, a mental health expert, the pretty much only comfort I can find is that I can be somewhat of a liaison to mutual aid um, for my students. And I mean, it's just exactly what you're speaking of, even though you started this by saying, I'm not sure if it applies, like it feels like it completely applies. Of course, that's my that's lens good. as a reader, right? Um, but there's so much more that goes on around the event of being sick than just being sick. There's an anxiety of becoming sick. There's, a, you know, someone like Harold was mentioning infrastructure, like someone has to drive you to a hospital or, you know, there's care that goes into this, like before and after the event of finding out that you are confirmed in Western medical standards as being sick, um, yeah. which not everybody has access to that confirmation either, right? So right. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to just how um, the communities and individuals you were working with uh, were facilitating that intermediary relationship between um, community needs and availability yeah. of what um, could provide healing in different senses, I think. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, when, as Daisy pointed out, a lot of the historical research in the first part of the book and also some of the, the field work and, and personal interactions in the second part, a lot of my, my, my thesis was that Mexican-American religious healing is, has, has not been and continues to not be contained within the Mexican-American ethnic community that it is having and has had you know, a, a sizable and important impact on uh, white settlers and you know other you know Anglo and and, and non-Latino people in the United States, and so I think looking back at like grad school me who was writing this a lot of this and early career, you know I think I was probably trying to be hopeful that even with the title border medicine this idea like a play on words a little bit that that curanderismo and these kinds of traditions could help heal the divisions that have existed. And I, and I think obviously that's naive and in a lot of ways and, and not complete. Um, on the other hand, I think that the fact that these traditions can be effective, even though they don't have a, you know, a quote unquote biomedical basis, um, shows that you know, communities of mutual care, I think is what the word I use sometimes or the phrase, you know, are, are really important. And, and sociologists and political science have shown us too that, you know, this kind of bridging is, is ultimately pretty much all we've got other than major structural change to overcome and address, you know, serious divisions in our society. Uh, and, you know, that, that's, that's what we've got. You know, I feel like um, we just have to keep promoting that sort of thing. Um, and I think that what gets tricky um, is there also, you know, of course, it can be the very problematic dynamics of, of appropriation or um, even theft of somebody's cultural traditions. Um, and that's not, I, I think that, there, you know, there can be a lot of different ways to think about that without, you know, I don't think we can say that these sorts of things are always appropriation or theft or always are like just free and easy exchanges on the, you know, the marketplace of ideas. Um, you know, ultimately they come down to actual people dealing with each other, um, sometimes in, in healthy and productive ways and sometimes not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that one of the things I was real nervous about and continue to be nervous about with border medicine is, is I kind of imply that 
modern day curanderos have, have found their most important niche in some ways in U.S. society in kind of the new age spiritual world. Um, and it's not even a world that I inhabit. I'm, I'm not much of a dabbler. I, you know, it's not something I do a lot. Um, on the other hand, I think that it, it has created a place or the market has created a place or a place exists where people talk to each other and feel really excited with each other. Like tons of curanderas who are, you know, 18 million generation Mexicans or whatever love Reiki and yoga, you know, and that's not, that's important too, that it goes in both ways. Okay. Uh, and ultimately in a, in a time like this, and sorry, I'm totally rambling now in a time like this, when we really need to feel better, you know, I, I really hate to like condemn anyone trying to get it together. And so, so I was thinking about um, this, like in, in terms of the exchange of ideas um, as one way to describe the, the relationship. Um, and then there's other, other um, ways as well. But um, one of the CSRC's uh, research fellows, Abel Gomez, is working on trying to like connect the ways in which um, epidemic diseases during the colonial era um, influence certain patterns and structures that are now influencing or impacting indigenous communities um, today oh, wow. in terms of the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic, right? So one of the things that you talk about early on in, in the history is the this potential exchange of ideas between, um, was it Jesuits coming in and having this idea that death is not a failure of the particular health practices, right? That it's po yeah. possibly, and it went both ways, right? Whether it was um, someone from an indigenous um, community or whether it was one of their own, um, yeah. that, that it was a, um, it was not a, a sign of a failure. So I wonder like what yeah. so, some of these historical structures in terms of the yeah. exchanges that were in place, because um, you try to like make chart this, um, this line between those early exchanges um, and then some of the things that are um, happening in terms of like more contemporary um, marketplaces that are fostering a different um, set of exchanges. You know, and those Jesuits are rough too because some of them were cold, cold-hearted. Um, you know, they they did these massive baptisms in New Spain. You know, thousands of people in a day sometimes, and the and then people would often die shortly thereafter uh and that was then cause for celebration so it wasn't like they were saying death is a natural part of life that we all you know it's you know it's the great circle of life or whatever they were they were really thinking like these were sort of like wins for our side and we don't have to go through the trouble of having like these people to bother us you know to you know this was they died in grace basically uh, and so th they died in a good way, as far as the Jesuits were concerned, in sort of a very, I think, uh, abstract theological way. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, to play that way, I guess, as, you know, there were uh, other Jesuits who were very committed to uh, learning medical knowledge, uh, such that, you know, they could continue to help people as part of their overall calling as, as missionaries and as, um, as, as fathers in the church and brothers. Um, as far as bringing that up to the contemporary situation, um, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's quite as clear, you know, I mean, maybe it should be as clear. I feel like, um, you know, the attitude of the Jesuits are saying, well, they, they died in grace, um, you know, and, and maybe I'm getting outside my expertise here, but that, to me, that feels reminiscent of people saying today, well, we should just open up everything and get some massive herd immunity and some people are going to die. That's just the price we have to pay as a society. Um, okay, so that's like, a, a, to my mind, a, a, not a healthy way of thinking about death as part of like a natural way of all of us getting better. Um, so I, yeah. I was wondering about, in terms of the relationship in, in the exchanges, the potential modalities of exchanges. Um, so they, there, was a, there was a hierarchical relationship in that the historical um, example that we were looking at. Um, and then you have a market that emerges and okay. it's not devoid of, of a hierarchical relationship right. either, right? right. So. Um, 
and then thinking about then how how um, right. So as Wendy Marshall was talking about in the initial podcast, um, who are the experts in the in the um, contemporary moment? Um, and like you and so many of us want to say, well, we're not we're not health experts, right? We we should listen to the scientists and the doctors and so forth. Um, but again, this is also fraught with issues of, of hierarchies in terms of exchanges around um, knowledge production. Yeah, that's a, a, a good question. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that, that comes up in border medicine is how do you become a curandera? And, you know, how did that happen historically? How does it happen now? And I think it, it's related to this marketplace issue that you know, maybe historically, at least according to uh, lore, uh, which is hard to you know, sort of verify outside of just the context of lore, uh, you know, that you were considered to have a gift and there'd be some you know, amazing curandera old lady in your, you know, your, your town and she would take you under your wing, her wing and you know, train you up nice. You know, kind of like, I don't know if you all have read Bless Me Ultima, um, it's a wonderful book, but you know, that kind of idea. Um, and then you get the sense now that there, there might still be the recognition of a, of a gift of someone being called to or having a special aptitude for uh, healing. But all the curanderas who work in botanicas in California, um, I mean, it's, I don't know, Daisy probably knows better than I do, uh, what the apprentice situation is or how do you get into this? Um, you know, there's probably some apprenticing, but there might also be some people who just are hustlers, you know, to get out there and do the job, you know? Um, and then there are also, I mean, if, if we don't have time right now, but if you Google it, you can become a curandera right now or a curandero. Just take the course on the internet, um, you know, possibly for free, possibly for money. Um, so, one of the arguments I make in the book is that one of the reasons why curanderismo has been less um, tied up in, 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 in questions of appropriation that we, you know, you hear a lot with, with Native American studies is that accessing the curandero has always to a certain extent been a commercial interaction. Um, you know, there's sometimes a, an idea that it should be free or just because you love this person, but it's not free. You're still supporting them as a community in those kinds of scenarios. And now in, in, in like a modern economy, that's with money or something, you know, a trade. Mm -hmm. um, that, that doesn't get to your question though very well, Harold, in the sense that that doesn't really, uh, um, that doesn't really critique what's available and what's not available and to whom and by whom. Um, with that said though, I think that there are, um, it's, not, it's certainly not a black market, but I feel like it, there are markets that are accessible to some people that aren't necessarily accessible to others and in a way that maybe exclude, um, you know, like I think I would have a hard time being who I am like going to, let's say, um, uh, Albuquerque and setting up a botanica and claiming that I'm a curandero, you know, just because of my identity um, as a white guy. Um, that, well, I don't know what I'm doing, these sorts of things. Um, and maybe it would be more possible for um, someone with a Mexican-American heritage. I don't know. I don't know for a fact. Um, I suspect it would be. Um, yeah, I really think this is a place for more research. Um, there's a really interesting book. Um, I can't think of the name of it right now, but it, it traces, you know, those little milagros, the little like tin, you know, they're often body parts. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an analysis. It came out with University of Arizona Press. I can't think of the name of it right now, but it looks and sees how those things are produced in factories in China and how then uh, they are, you know, the, the kind of chain, uh, the, the, what is it called in business? I'm horrible at this. The, the chain of um, uh, supply chains of these like little <laughs> knickknacks and things that you would buy in a botanica. They're being produced, you know, overseas and sort of, uh, you know, in Asian factories. So, you know, that's an interesting question too, uh, how these have become parts of like a, a part of the global capitalist economy. Yeah. So um, Patrick Polk, who I, I'm, 
think was going to be on this podcast, yeah. but oh, yeah. I'm not sure where he is. He's actually been doing that in LA, is looking at oh, wow. that supply chain. I mean, he's got That's this great, fantastic. if you are friends with him on Facebook, he's got this great image of St. Expedy um, stepping on a bald eagle, right? <laughs> and so he's, you know, he's, he's, it's a funny way to, um, you know, really interesting to think about the translation of certain religious and cultural practices in the U.S. and especially in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and Roman Catholicism, right? And then mm -hmm. kind of moving to China and then moving back, right? And what happens yeah. in that translation. So yeah, I mean, it's kind yeah. of fascinating. I, to think I don't know enough about it, it, but I think that would be fascinating to look at that and see, you know, how those sort of goods, actual physical goods get manufactured and, and sold. Yeah, so I guess another thing to think about would be um, not only the potential role that um, curanderismo could play uh, in addressing health issues currently in the COVID-19 um, pandemic time, but also how um, those practices themselves are being impacted. So whether the supply chain is being impacted, whether people have less access to um, healers and what kinds of broader issues that's bringing up. So people don't have access to, to um, these healers. What are the other um, health issues that are going to be exacerbated by lack of access? Yeah. It's, it's a great question, yeah. And what will be authorized, you know, by scholarship reporting on this as authentic um, healing practices, because often right. um, these candles or other items are spoken about as kitsch in certain mm -hmm. veins of scholarship rather than um, legitimate sacred objects. And as someone studying the medieval period, it's very interesting to me that body parts like are often authorized as sacred objects in the medieval period, but they're kind of similar um, things that people are taking from pilgrimages in a very similar way. So I'd be interested to hear you speak a little bit about how um, some of these objects are and are not recognized in scholarly vocabularies um, as religious, but also the ways that some of these curanderos and curanderas were saying that this was not religious to them. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's, you know, this is kind of the, the perennial question for religious studies in a way, you know, what are we doing here? And <laughs> what, what do we study? Um, you know, I, I thinking, I'm thinking about, um, you know, you, some, I think some of the only way that some people have been able to deal with their own tradition as, you know, interacting with curanderismo and thinking about it as having sort of a heritage or a long history going back from before the Spanish or whatever, is to even say, this is my religion. You know, I don't think many people say that, but I, I, I've talked to a few people that say, you know, this is, this is what I believe in. This is my system of belief. Um, I think one place where that gets maybe most clearly expressed are in a few of the uh, the groups that claim that they're the church of um, Nino Fidencio, like different Fidencista groups that have formed an entire elaborate sort of uh, hierarchy and rituals and, you know, pyramids and all kinds of stuff. Um, I think in a way, watching new religions develop that are re rooted somewhat in curanderismo or Mexican folk healing is a little bit showing that the power of of what we're doing is real. You know, it's not just us sitting in our universities and teaching and writing books and stuff that, you know, our ability to define things as religion or not religion are, are making an impact in a way that are affecting how people want to define themselves and what they're doing. Um, of saying, okay, yeah, you know, if we're going to be religious, then we need to like make this a real thing. We can't just do what we're doing and, and, and carry on. Um, there's a, I think the chapter that addresses this most in, in border medicine is um, the one about Fidencio, where um, in shamanism in general and, and, the, and the creation of neo-shamanism, which is basically a creation of anthropologists that, you know, study various people and decide to come back and, and kind of promote it as, as a universal system of accessible to everyone, particularly like um, Michael Harner, um, the guy, um, Carlos Castaneda, who wrote the Don Juan books, um, these sorts of things where um, 
those things enter the 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 culture in a way that I think is is really tangible and and carries on and um you know th there was a great phrase that I came across in my research of um calling uh, these guys like Michael Harner shamanthropologists mm -hmm. um kind of a neologism and um I think that's that's really apt um you know I'm, I'm I don't I don't really think I have the theoretical skills um, or, or wherewithal, or sort of even like the, the personality maybe, to think about how I'm doing that too um, in my own classes in, in a way that I'm maybe not as aware of, um, or maybe I should be more aware of of, of, of communicating what's real and what's not real um, in what I write and what I teach. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of a cautionary tale, I guess. Um, on the other hand, I don't think we should always think of those things as ultimately negative. I mean, I think that they are just things, again, that are open to study, that we can see that these are processes of the way things develop. And, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, just because we interfere necessarily as scholars that we're, that it's become sort of not real or true anymore. I mean, we're part of real, what's real and true, too. Mm -hmm. okay. Does anybody Brett, else want to ask a question? I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, sure. Brett, or Kayla, too. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Brett, uh, can you, for the listeners who will be listening into our conversation, haven't read the book, maybe like share a one a story that you heard about in your fieldwork that kind of epitomizes why it is that the stories we tell, you know, are key to learning how to heal because the stories will define what that illness is that we are suffering from, and then kind of explain what is it about the Southwest region in particular. It's, it's peculiar landscape or geography, perhaps. The expansiveness, I think the word expansive comes in your book uh, a couple of times, if not more. But there's something about that region that we kind of need to meditate on, I suppose, right? Because, I mean, one of the things I really love about the book is I'm trained in American religious history, and the category of region is really important. Northeast, Pacific Northwest, the Prairie Midwest, Southeast, uh, uh, and um, even uh, the places like Arkansas and the Ozark region. I mean, Bethany Morton's book on Walmart is all about why the Ozark region is so important. So I'm just like, I just, I'm interested in uh, you here telling us a little more about what is it about the Southwest that's so important here? Okay, great. Well, as far as a key story goes from the text, um, that's a great question. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a story, you know, when, when I was writing the dissertation, I was living outside St. Louis, Missouri, uh, because my wife had gotten a job there and I'd finished coursework at Arizona State and we were living outside St. Louis. And I was, I went to the public library in St. Louis and I found um, the newspaper of when Teresa Orrea, the one of the three had, was on her national tour when she had come to um, St. Louis and had just gathered this humongous crowd there in the city. And of course, these are all like, I wouldn't want to say all, but mostly white people. Um, a lot of them of like German descent in the St. Louis area at the time. Um, and and they were, many of them were giving these kind of testimonies of like, this is amazing. She's a miracle worker. Like she knew exactly what was wrong with me or she's got incredible uh, ability to see what I am, you know, what's wrong and how to fix it. Um, and, you know, these kind of stories you can kind of trace in the newspaper accounts across the country. Brandon Bain had an article about this in church history a long time ago about this. And um, I think those kind of things are, are really fascinating because you know, I think it, it's really hard to imagine in 2020 what it must have been like for a middle class, let's say, Mexican-American, Mexican woman to go on a healing tour of the United States in the, in the very first decade of the, of the 20th century and, you know, what that would be like for people. Mm -hmm. um, and I try to tell that story, uh, you know, what were the sort of probable assumptions that people were making and having? Um, and they're, it, they're different from how I feel, you know, how we are now, you know, the, the past is a foreign country in this regard. Like it's, it's a, it's a different time and, and people were not thinking of her as I think they would think about her today. And they were very receptive to her, her talents and skills and presence. Um, 
you know, and so and why is that is, is kind of the interesting question. And so, you know, who, who, who today continues to be receptive to those sorts of, of healers is, is another group of people, but it's, it's still for reasons that we can like study and think about. Um, as far as the Southwest goes, it, it's probably just my own little romantic fantasy in some ways. I love the Southwest. Um, I lived in New Mexico for a couple years and I lived in Arizona for a few years. I lived in Texas for a few years. Um, I've never lived in California um, and I'm not sure it's the Southwest maybe um, exactly. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't, I'm not, like, I'm not the one who would decide. Yeah. Uh, it's, first of all, it's, you know, I think the, I was just preparing a lecture before I got on the podcast for my religion, my Latino religions class about um, Aslan and the, the land of Aslan. And um, I think it makes it a really important difference that this was the heartland of North Me Northern Mexico and Northern New Spain for centuries, not Mexico, but from New Spain and then Mexico. Uh, this, this is a part of our country that was unlike, you know, it was, it was stolen from the indigenous people before we got there um, to steal it from them. You know, it was, it was you know, it, it's a part of the, it was a, a part of an imperial acquisition rather than part of just regular like westward marching federal colonialism. And I think that's really important to the identity of the area. And I also think the fact that there are today 37 million Mexican Americans, many of whom live in the Southwest states is extremely important. I mean, that's like about the size of the population of Canada, that the Mexican Americans, it's more than 10% of the population. It's, it's an incredibly important component of who we are. And I know not all Mexican Americans live in the Southwest, but you know, the, as, a, as a geographical sort of center of gravity, that's where it is. Um, the, the other thing I think that's interesting about it is that it, at least, um, and I, and this is not completely true for in the last few decades, um, but the whole heritage of the old West is, is a stereotype and a cliche from the movies and has some things that are true about it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. with the big ranches and the people who are trying to recreate themselves in, in nowhere. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a place where white settlers have very much gone in order to imagine themselves in like a completely new place. Um, and I think that has colored the culture of the area um, for sure. Um, from Texas to Arizona to New Mexico as well. Although maybe a little less in New Mexico, but certainly in New Mexico as well with all the Taos artists and everything like that. Um, it, it's just been kind of a fantasy land. Um, and yeah, so I, it's just got so much going on about it. But if I could plug a couple things, I, I'm really excited to hear about all these centers working on religion in the city. There's a few people now working, myself included, on projects that are about religion in the American West. Um, Tisa Wenger at Yale has a project going on with um, the New York Public Library right now. And you could look into that. They're looking for um, researchers. And then um, I and Brandy Dennison, who's at the University of North Florida, in a couple of years are going to be collaborating with the Clement Center uh, for a study of the Southwest at SMU. We're going to have a series of symposia about religion in the American West that will hopefully lead to an edited volume. It's been pushed back, I think, until 2023 because of COVID. And we're kind of in the, in the queue, but we're getting there too. So... Um, thinking about the importance of region and religion in the areas is definitely, uh, yeah, it's on, on my radar and other people's radar too. Yeah, definitely send those resources um, to, and emails so that we could maybe put them up with the podcast and put them on the website okay. along with the podcast. That would be great. Yeah. Um, does anybody else have mm -hmm. a question that they didn't get in yet? Yeah. Go, is Daisy? Yeah. And <laughs> anyone. Right. Um, so, I feel like I've been following your trajectory as a scholar, right, with border medicine, and I was in grad school, and I was actually living in Albuquerque when your book on Chimayo came out. <laughs> I was, you know, making yeah. kind of weekly trips up to that shrine, also about healing, oh. right? So yeah. um, can you, I guess, more of a personal question is, you know, what sure. is it about, you know, you've talked a bit about what 
what's special about the Southwest, but it's also uh -huh. about healing, right? It's landscape and yeah. healing, and, and yeah. this is something that's kind of, yeah. you know, the, the thing that connects your scholarship. Can you reflect well, on that? That's a good question. Let me give a nice personal answer too. <laughs> you know, I got to grad school at ASU and I knew I wanted to study, um, you know, um, pra Catholic practice um, at the border. And so I, you know, you immediately start to hear about these folk saints and everything like that. And so it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to study folk saints. That seems great. But then what it, what got me eventually studying curanderismo is that it, it just seemed every single thing that people wanted from the folk saints was healing. They wanted wellness. Um, you know, I even thought briefly that it would be interesting to, um, and again, I, I've already told you, I don't think I have the theoretical chops for this, but to, to, to come up with a theory of religion that instead of being like flows and currents or whatever, that it's, it's healing, that, that religion is healing. That's what it's about, you know? I think that would be really fascinating. I mean, I, I'm sure it's other stuff too, but that would be a really cool theoretical project to work on for someone who could do it. Um, I mean, the other part, as, as I end up mentioning in border medicine is, you know, before I became an academic, I was a Presbyterian minister. And, um, you know, it's, um, that theory of healing would be, it, 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 it certainly would work in, in my very different context of, of older Anglo Presbyterians um, who, you know, all they want, even though they, they don't really, I think half the time think that God can hear them, uh, that, you know, prayer is all about healing almost every time, almost every time. Um, that's what, it, at least in the modern world, and, and I would say if you study the medieval world, not too bad either, either. Uh, healing is what people want from their religion uh, so much. And um, that's really exciting to me. And um, I think it's one of the reasons why, too, um, medical humanities programs are flourishing so much around the country right now people go to college that cost like a million dollars and they think they want to be a doctor because you know they want to make tons of money but then they realize they love their humanities classes and they're like oh i'll go into medical humanities because what they care about are these stories you know what what we really care about or not we i mean we those of us gathered here but i think all of us actually okay. we really really care about this mm -hmm. yeah i think um yeah so if anybody else has another question or do we get everybody i just want to make sure that we everybody got it so yeah yeah, I think that that's a great way to kind of end too, is kind of what you think, Brett, too, on, um, you know, is it, what's our job as religion scholars here? <laughs> um, our role, I mean, is, are we the ones, are we falling behind here? Like, how can we, because we're talking about medical humanities, um, what are things that we can do to create a more kind of integrated, pluralistic uh, model of healthcare for America? What can we do? Are you asking me? Yeah, I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Can you solve all the world's issues right now in like two minutes? <laughs> you know, I, um, I teach, I also teach a class in religion and healing. Mm -hmm. And it has never been like, well, this is what Muslims think. And this is what Jews think. And this is what Buddhists think. You know, it's, it's never really been that. Uh, to the great chagrin, I think, of some of my students who, you know, just want to like, get in there and figure out what everybody understands and, and move on. And there, there are quite a few textbooks. Um, a lot of them are used in nursing programs, actually, that, that do just that. They're like, you know, and if you have a Buddhist patient, this is what they're going to be like. And if you have, um, you know, a, a Hindu, this is what they're going to be like. Can I, can I interrupt really quick? I'm sorry, because sure. Sierra actually has, uh, like, an ex experience with that that exact um, problematic approach to it. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll plug my article I published, I co-authored oh, cool. a few years ago with uh, Stephen Ramey, who's at the University of Alabama. Uh, it's titled so Sourcing Stereotypes. And basically, exactly what you were describing, I, I was very frustrated with simplistic representations of communities in medical literature and so um, specifically one textbook, I printed out their chart and I looked at all their sources and like the walls of my um, room when I was a master's student were just source on source on source on source of like who they were citing and what they were doing. And I found that actually uh, they had completely misconstrued data, which we could talk about what it means to even collect data in the first place, but they had basically taken findings where 
um, black women were being underprovided with medical care and therefore were requesting equal access to care, but they were framing that as um, black patients being um, more demanding. That is what the chart oh, was framing. Wow. They also took studies on um, individuals who were displaced by world wars, who were not English speaking and who were Jewish, um, and they didn't factor that English speaking part into the conclusion. And they used that data to say that Jews were more vocal um, without saying that the researchers were English speakers and therefore someone who, it, it, as you can tell, it gets very complicated. But as I followed down this rabbit hole of uh, trying to figure out where these conclusions came from for this chart that was made for nursing students. And as far as I can tell, it's still on the market. Um, and yeah, so <laughs> thanks, Harold, yeah. uh, that, but yeah, so. Yeah, um, and, and, and what do you, I, I should, I know you asked me, but I think you're probably more able to say the question here, right? What, what's a better approach? So I compared it to the world religions paradigm, uh, Professor Ramey and I compared it to that and just, that was our last, that was our last section. We said, so what do we do? Do we never make a chart? And yeah. I remember when I presented this article, um, a professor of New Testament said like something along the lines of, well, I would never use a chart in my class. And I said, well, I took your class when I was an undergrad and there's this thing called the Septuagint. And then, the, you know, there's this, this canon of Hebrew Bible and there's all these different layers and you can use charts to portray nuance. Um, sure. But you also have to recognize that the form of a chart is in and of itself mm -hmm. uh, self-authorizing of each category that it's attempting to portray and it's purposefully reducing it's it's call it maybe strategic essentialism and so um, you have to be honest about your methods while also attempting to keep them uh as much as nuanced as the form you're choosing allows for um yeah. so yeah it was a very you know, that, process writing that article but it's out in the world <laughs> congratulations uh, i think that you know that the answer in some ways is is the one that we all know from teaching religious studies is that our, the content we teach really takes a backseat to the, the method and critical approach that we teach. And, um, you know, and, and that doesn't always work in the university where, you know, content can be really like what people want, especially if they're in STEM fields where that's kind of like the name of the game and sometimes not to throw shade on the STEM fields, but um, that, yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, what's what's more important to teach health professionals but but anybody is you know the approach that we have of of you know listening contrasting thinking uh you know taking seriously what people tell us um and also being attentive to what people do in addition to what they say and you know all these sorts of things so Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if we follow Ansel Dua and think about the border as like an herida abierta, an open wound, then I know you're hesitant to come to the like metaphor language of healing that you used in this book, but I think that the the self-reflexivity that you've been describing um, and the ways to think about the intersections of Catholicism with this category of what looks like folk in the United States, I think that at least allows us to like get a, a better perspective on what that open wound looks like and recognize it and maybe we can't ultimately heal everything but um yeah and and the book on Chimayo also I think allows us to get a better sense of what was happening in this space we call the borderlands and um what is yeah. that for us today thank you I, I appreciate it I mean I think you know I know you're probably trying to wrap me up here but um my 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 approach to Mexican-American religious history, especially as someone who's not a Mexican-American, has, has consistently been to say that, you know, this is not like an exotic tradition with walls around it. It's part of American religious history, hook, line, and sinker, and, and that's what I want to understand. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, if you guys are ready, should we wrap it up or... Anybody else? Yeah, we're like right at that time. We could ask one more or wrap it up. I think we've, we had really good conversation today, really lively. Thank you so much, Brett, for joining us. Thank you, Daisy, yeah. for that awesome summary. And thank you, everyone who came. Um, 
for the excellent questions and the discussion as always. <laughs> um, yeah. so, Thank you very much. Yes, yes. So we will be meeting again um, for, I think, well, we'll come up with a date for the next one. Um, we're going to be doing Kevin um, O'Neill, The Hunted. So as our next book. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, I'll keep in touch, let you guys know the date. Because I know with classes starting for everyone right now and your schedules are all up and so I think we'll, we'll come up with something. Yeah, and Brett, if you'd like to join us again too, please feel free or whatever. I know <laughs> everyone's so busy right now, so I don't feel like you have to, but it was so great having you. Thank you so much and thank you everyone. Thanks a lot, everyone. It's great to meet you and see you. Take care. Likewise. Take care, everyone. Bye. 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 For more information about how you can get involved and make change in your community today, please visit the Contagion Religion and Cities webpage at religionandcities.org slash contagion dash podcast.